the only thing I could do was turn to Jesus. That's the only thing I, I could do. And, you know, I had to really just learn that it's okay to go through the emotions and it's okay to, to process it all. Um, but bottom line is that I just needed to trust God. There's going to be pain and suffering in life. And the question is, is do I trust Him? You know, am I gonna am I gonna choose to follow him regardless of what's going on in my life? There can be a whole lot of joy through that because once you've learned to let go and to trust in God alone, then your life can become something that can be used for him. I've actually been a victim of a hate crime. I've actually experienced that. There aren't that many Americans at this point who can say, you know, I've known somebody who's experienced that. Well, anybody who knows me now knows somebody that's been directly affected by a hate crime. Uh, my sister started a foundation up in Kansas City that's very active in the community up there. We've done all, they've done all sorts of things. Uh, not being up there and being down here, I, you know, I, I can see it from afar, but I try to do what I can. And I spoke at, at the funeral service. I said, you know, my dad could have lived to be, you know, 85, 90 years old and just passed away. And, you know, people would have been sad, but it would have been normal. Him being taken this way really focused attention all over the United States, all over the world. I mean, it was a global story when it happened. And so... He, his death and his life and my nephew's as well um, lives on and, and, and is much more elevated. And we got to talk about our faith publicly, and, like now, and in the newspaper, and people got to see how we handled it. So really, by virtue of it happening, one of the good things is that people get to see, you know, you don't have to be angry. I still hurt, I still cry, but I have joy. I've really learned how to go on. You know, grief is interesting. If you try to get away from the pain, you lose her. Memories are all you have. So I've learned to incorporate her into my life now. Kind of like a, a landscape where you had this favorite tree and it died and you want to just uproot it because it's ugly. But instead, you leave it for the texture and the beauty, and you plant flowers all around it. That's my life. Amanda is very much in my life. I love her. I miss her. I miss the future we could have had. But God has given me so much, and He's made me a mother through the kids that I teach, through my stepkids. He's given me hope and joy and a reality that this future is good because God is good. I can handle the past, I can handle the future. Sometimes our stories don't have happy endings. But they can have happier endings. A happy ending 
for Liadra is that she could wake up and live a full day without the chronic pain in the back of her head that sometimes debilitates her, that she literally has to lay down or even go home and, and then try to raise two, two boys and three if you include Daniel as one of those uh, uh, in the mix. Um, a happy ending would be for Will to be able to, on this Father's Day, to be able to be with his father up in Kansas City and be able to spend Father's Day with his father. That's a happy ending. A happy ending would be for, um, for Holly to receive some flowers on Mother's Day from her daughter, Amanda. But that's not going to happen. So if you can't have a happy ending, is there a way to have a happier ending? Happier in comparison to the where I am now. Happier than, than the loss and the pain and the, and the suffering that maybe you're going through now. And again, I don't know where everyone is on the spectrum of pain and suffering and, and loss and, and bewilderment and betrayal or, or wherever you're feeling in, in deep down in your soul. But I would imagine that if you're there, you're, you're kind of, your head's rattling and you're, and you're thinking, where's God in this? Because if God were God, he would fix it. He would make it all right. I mean, you read the God of the Old Testament and you see what he did for the people of Israel. You look to the New Testament and you see how he's going to wipe away all the tears from, his, from our eyes. He said, why, why this? This in-between. A.W. Tozer, a great thinker of years gone by, said this. He said, we think of ourselves as inhabiting some parenthetical interval between the God who was and the God who will be. But in the ever-present now, we are lonely with an ancient cosmic loneliness. The God who was, that, 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 that God of victory for the people of Israel, the, the, the God who will be, the God who will wipe away the tears, but yet we're bracketed in here in this parenthetical statement of the loneliness of pain. And when you go through pain, it is lonely. Because nobody can hurt like you're hurting and nobody can feel like you're feeling and nobody can think like you're thinking and nobody has experienced it like you've experienced it. And I'm not trying to make light of that. But, and the reality is, is that's why we sometimes get into these, these little, uh, well, if you only knew what I've gone through statements and, and you haven't hurt like I've hurt and somebody tells you about their pain, then we want to almost try to soothe them by giving them our pain story. And that doesn't soothe the other person. It's this horrible, lonely middle that we live in. But sometimes we don't even see God there. If I can borrow from Tim Keller again, he says, affliction makes God appear to be absent for a time. More absent than a dead man, more absent than light in the other darkness of a cell. During this absence, there's nothing to love. Love is gone, God is gone, and the pain remains. How is it that we cope and deal and live in pain and God not take it away? Be finding in your book, the Bible, the book of Romans. 
If you have it on the screen, be scrolling down and find the book of Romans and, and, and be finding that. We're going to be there in a moment. And Lori was supposed to share today from the book of Job, um, and she has been sick literally for two months. And uh, back to the time when we were coming Mount Kilimanjaro, she's been on antibiotics. She's seen multiple doctors. In fact, even had a CAT scan this past week trying to figure out what's going on in the sinus areas of her life. And it's been pretty debilitating for her, so she is not going to be here, obviously. Uh, And pray for her. And as she continues uh, on a path to recovery, we hope now that we have some other answers. And so we've been been wrestling with this, her obviously, more than myself. Um, But here we are today in the book of Romans, where I intended to share uh, the very last week. But we have another message that we'll finish it out with uh, next week. But we're looking at the life of Paul again. We were at Paul back several weeks ago, if you remember, in 2 Corinthians, when we were dealing with the thorn in the flesh. Paul dealt with suffering on a very personal, internal, and external. He was afflicted internally by this thorn in the flesh. He was afflicted by this thorn and it stayed with him and he couldn't get rid of it. And we don't know what that thorn is and I'm glad we don't know what it is because then we can insert our thorn there and we can learn from our thorn. We can insert our thorn there and learn and try to let that be the template for how we deal with the thorns of internally inside of our own lives. But he was also inflicted externally by people putting pain into his life. As you're finding Romans chapter 8, we'll be there in a moment. But I want to read to you some of the pains that he went through from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So notice these. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Physically inflicting pain. Near death. Five times 40 less one. What's the whole idea with 40? Why didn't he just say 39? Because 40 under Roman rule was almost a guaranteed death sentence. That if you had 40 lashes, you were probably going to bleed to death. They got him as close to death and then they pulled back. So that he would experience all there was of suffering, but not the relief of death. That's what he went through. That's number one, verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was, uh, I was adrift at, at, at sea on frequent journeys in danger of rivers and dangers of robbers and dangers of people and dangers of Gentiles and dangers of cities and dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers of false brothers in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And notice this last one. A part of the other things, there is a daily pressure on me uh, of my anxiety of all the churches. So being a pastor is like getting a beating, okay? Keep that in mind. Pray for me. He puts in the same thing. I'm not going to say it's the same thing if I find much joy, but there is a level of pressure and anxiety that comes with pastoring as we have many pastors that, that deal with it on their personal level and corporate level. But here, the point is, is that, that the reality is, is that even good godly people, missionaries like the Apostle Paul, were inflicted with great pains and were afflicted with pains internally. We're going to read from Paul in Romans chapter 8. And we're going to read probably one of the most, uh, one of the best understandings of, of suffering and how to make sense of suffering and how to make it through suffering in all of the New Testament, Romans chapter 8. 
And many of us will we'll come to a passage here in a moment that you will be able to quote with me because you know it, you've heard it, you've read it, and all that kind of stuff. But in this whole idea of dealing with pain, Paul helps us here. He gives us a pathway. He gives us some pathways to be able to sort through this. Now, here's what you're going to have to do. Put on your seatbelt and be ready to uh, uh, levitate, elevate yourself up a little bit above the clouds, above the muck, among the mire, above the uh, suffering, and look at it in a much deeper, broader perspective than ever before. But if you do this and you practice this pathway through the pains of your life, you will be able to make it uh, and navigate through the pain a lot better. And so we're going to look at this, but before we do this, again, just to get us back into the context, let's go to the last part of chapter 8. Not the first part, but the last part. We're going to build backwards, okay? So verse, uh, verse 35, it says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Everything about what we're going to be about is everything that Robbie just let us in, the band just let us in, is about the love of God and the love of Christ. It all comes back to this love relationship with Christ. And who can separate us? Shall tribulations, these are just a few of the things that he went through, distress, persecution, famine, darkness, danger, sword. Those would certainly all constitute an element of suffering as it is written for the sake that we uh, are being filled all the day. We are regarded as, excuse me, we are being killed all the day. So every day we're all waking up and we're one step closer to the grave. All right. What a happy thought for a Sunday morning, right? And we regard it as sheep to the slaughter. That's us. No, none of those things will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. So everything's going to circle back around to the love of Christ and what Christ is going to do in our lives in suffering. No, all these things, we are more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors, not because it's mind over matter, not because I can conquer, because I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. No, but through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, nor things, things present, nor things in the, uh, to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. Again, back to the love of God. Separate us from the love of God. And how is this love experienced and known and, and felt? Through Christ Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we dive into this, we're going to see that the love of God and what the love of God provides for us on this Valentine's Day. You want a lover who will never leave you? You want a lover who will never forsake you? You want a lover who will never fail you? Get to know Jesus. And get to know him in a real, personal, intimate way. So let's jump into these pathways. Number one, jot it down. Develop an eternal, eternal perspective on living. This is where we're going to rise up a little bit. This is where we've got to get our heads out of the clouds. We've got to get our heads out of the muck and the mire. And we've got to see things from an eternal perspective. We live in the nasty now and now. We dream of the sweet by and by. But how can we marry those two together in some form or fashion? If we will have a perspective, a view, a vision, a direction that there is a better future out there, then it will help us. It will give us maybe the motivation to get out of bed one more day. Verse 18 is a great one to start on. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time... Stop there. I'm going to give you homework to do. 
I want you to get a journal. I want you to get a piece of paper. I don't care. You get a napkin in the restaurant after you leave here. And I want you to start jotting down all the things in your life that cause misery and pain and suffering and hurt and betrayal or whatever that you're feeling like in this season, in this present time of suffering. It's very real for some of you. Some of it's distance, some of it's present, some of it's future. But wherever you are in this present time of suffering, think about that. Write it down. But that he doesn't stop there. I love it that he keeps going. Are not worth comparing. So whatever you're going to write down, and however bad it is, it's not going to hold a candle to. It's not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. So it's, it may be bad now. It may be really, really bad now. It may be really dark now. But listen, I just want to give you a different perspective. You can focus here or you can focus there. But if you focus there, it's going to make this look a lot smaller. And this is, is bad. And I'm not saying make light of this. And I'm not saying wash over this like a lot of Christians do. You know, that kind of a passive-aggressive Christianity where you kind of say, okay, you know, everything's good. You know, all dogs go to heaven. Or, or, or you have this kind of positive whitewashing over everything, positive mental attitude. But in reality, eventually, that plastic facade breaks. And that's why I started this series the way I started this series in dealing with some very real, raw emotions of Ruth. Had I started this series with a Roman 8 and said, hey, guys and gals, lift your head above your pains and just look out on the horizon and see that there's going to be a glory that's going to be better than the darkness of the present, then you would have said, oh, yeah, yeah, you're one of those pastors who washes, washes over everything. Listen, I want to, us to deal with the, the present sufferings, but I want to deal with them in light of the future glory. I want to have an eternal perspective. In fact, C.S. Lewis in his great work on this whole idea of suffering, the problem with pain in his classic work, he literally in one of the chapters opens it up with Romans chapter 8 verse 18. And he talks about you cannot come to the subject. Here's a philosopher. You cannot come to the subject of suffering and not bring eternity into it. If you're going to do a, 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 a total comprehensive understanding of it, you're going to have to understand it in light of heaven, in light of the future, and in light of where we're going. When you look on in verse 19 and following, you'll see how it kind of, he breaks into kind of breaking it down a little bit more and getting very real. He said the creation, and when you think of a creation, he's, you don't think of the animals and the trees so much, but think of mankind, okay? All of creation, for the creation waits with eager longing. Literally, the phrase there means to step out on your tippy toes and look down. I am waiting. One of these days, it's going to come for the revealing of the Son of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. This is a difficult world to live in. Not willing, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation, that's us again, itself will be set free from the bondage from the bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, verse 22 kind of sums up all of life. For we know that the whole creation, all of us, every single one in this boat called life, all of creation has been groaning, groaning together 
We've all been hurting. We've all experienced pain. We've all experienced loss. The pains of like a childbirth until now. And not only the creation, hang on to that word groanings. We'll see it again here in a minute. But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here is this this phrase right there in summation. Life is difficult. Everyone has had a difficult journey. It's all been pain. It's a groaning pain. It's an internal pain. It's an external pain. We see it. We feel it. We touch it. We smell it. It's all around us. And we're just waiting and longing for one day to be adopted out of this as a child adopted out of an abusive home, rescued into a home that loves, embraces, and accepts and takes away the pain and doesn't add on the pain. We are longing for that day to come and we're looking for that redeemed body where the body no longer feels pain. That's what we're looking for. And so if we could learn in looking at Paul's writing to, to just say, hey, you know what? Yeah, it's bad and this stinks and this, this is horrible. And, and what am I going to do with this? And we've got to deal with it. Don't sweep it under the rug. But there is an eternal perspective out there that life will be sweet one day. Heaven will be amazing one day. And I know that I'm going to bring a lot of comfort to you now, but if we can start living in that direction with the perspective, as even Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he said, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us. It's got a work to do inside of us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That means... We're going to go through it. It's going to be dark and painful and hurtful and all that kind of stuff. But listen, it doesn't compare. It doesn't hold a candle to what we're going to experience in the future. Remember, this is the guy who actually went to heaven and came back and told about it and recorded it. We read about that a few weeks ago. Sometimes, though, the pain is so overwhelming. I can remember... uh, when I was a kid, I had, I had one particular uncle. He was kind of like a second uncle to me, but he's almost like a father to me. His name was Lester. And Lester, I, I like Lester. He always had cool cars. I like Lester because he was always fun to go hang out. He was a bachelor, and he lived like a bachelor. And he always had junk food in his house, and we watched baseball games together. And so he was like a dad to me, and I would go hang out with him. I never understood even as a kid growing up, why does he always have new girlfriends? He always would have a new girlfriend. And you can figure out kind of the life that he was living. And then one day, Lester had a stroke. He was a complete game changer for Lester. The entire side of his body was, was immobile, was confined to a wheelchair. Moves in with my grandmother to spend out the rest of his days. And I can remember, I was devastated as a child. I was, I was by that time, I was old enough to kind of say, okay, this is the kind of way Lester's been living. And Okay, this doesn't have anything to do with that, but hey, this is horrible. And, and I went and I prayed with Lester. And I said, Lester, you want me to pray with you? Lester was not a praying man. But he said, you can pray with me. So we prayed and we prayed. I prayed God would heal him. I'd watch the guys on television. You know those televangelists? I'd seen how they prayed. I would go and I would mimic their prayers at Lester's wheelchair. Lester never got better. In fact, he died in the wheelchair. Now you think, Mike, where's this good story going? Because there was something that happened. 
between the time that Lester had a stroke and my constantly going and staying with him and watching baseball and and having Bible studies with Lester. Here I was about a 16-year-old boy with, I don't know, 50, 60-year-old uncle. And I was leading Bible studies with him. And Lester became a believer. Lester never got baptized, but he became a believer. And he read his Bible daily. In fact, he couldn't read very well, so I got him the cassette tapes, listened to him every day. He would listen to him. I'd go back and we'd talk about, what did you learn? And I wish, again, today I could tell you that Lester, when he, when he, when he died, he, he died walking and running and leaping, and he didn't. He died in a wheelchair, and, he, and God didn't answer my prayers the way I wanted them answered. And God didn't take away the pain and the suffering the way Lester wanted it to happen. But God was preparing him. God had to send a stroke to get Lester's attention. Had to send him through momentary affliction. If we can go back to that verse that we just had up there. Momentary afflictions. Because he's preparing him for something greater. And I can believe it's been now 20 plus years that Lester has been in heaven. I believe Lester is rejoicing on his feet, dancing in heaven because of a relationship that he established with Christ in a wheelchair. I don't know what wheelchair you're in, what suffering you may be in, but if we'll have an eternal perspective on it, it could and it might just be God preparing you for something even greater. Number two, another pathway is that we will enlist the Holy Spirit to help in your life. Now, this may seem a little patronizing, but please don't take it that way. But realize this, that the Holy Spirit of God resides in the heart of every believer. It's not for the special people over here. It's not a special sauce that we have brewing in the back and then we bring it out and put it on you and then you get it. It's nothing like that. It's, an inter- it's a relationship that you have with Jesus and Jesus tells us that he's going to send his spirit to us. And I love verse 26. I was reading it this week and I literally got to one phrase and I stopped. I put my head down on my desk and I could read no more. This is what the verse says. The Spirit helps us. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. I wonder sometimes if I try to fix my problems or how often do I lean on the Spirit, the Spirit, not a Spirit out there, the Spirit of God, okay? The Holy Spirit, not a Spirit. Not only that, a, not a Spirit, but He helps us. He's there to help us. His intent is to help us. It's exactly why Jesus said, when I go away, I'm going to send to you a comforter in John chapter 14, verse 16. I'm going to send to you a comforter. Let's read that together. So read it out loud with me. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you, live with you, stay with you, sleep with you, eat with you, go through life with you, seasons with you. You will never go it alone. And one of the intents of the Spirit of God inside of us is to help us. How does the Spirit help us? He helps us if you're a child of God. Verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us, takes advocacy for us, 
steps in whenever we can't do it. He steps up and he intercedes for us. The beauty, the beauty of this is, is powerful. And you, when you look at the scriptures, there's other verses, and we'll read one here in a little bit, but let me just point out, it's not only that the Spirit intercedes for us, but Jesus intercedes for us. Hebrews chapter, chapter 7, verse 25 says it like this, He is always, always, always able to save. Speaking of Jesus here, those who come to God through him. So this is what I want to point out. This is not Jesus is a option. It's Jesus is the option. He's always able to save those who come to God through him. Why? How is he able to do that? Because Jesus is always interceding for them. He's always advocating for them. He's always stepping up. You talk to a Muslim today, they will tell you, even the most devout Muslim, only Allah knows if they're going to heaven or they're going, they're going to paradise or they're not. We have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is interceding on our behalf and is able to do it, is capable, has the means to save those. In fact, there's only one mediator between God and man. In 1 Timothy, it says, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is not a player. He is the player. But not only that is he turns around, as we read earlier, and he sends his Holy Spirit to abide with us, to live with us. Like, okay, who, they're both interceding. Jesus is interceding over here and, and, and the Holy Spirit's interceding over here. Well, what are they doing? I think John Murray summarized it so well. He said, Christ is their intercessor, is our intercessor in the court of heaven. The Holy Spirit is their or our intercessor in the theater of their own hearts. The Holy Spirit of God is ready and able to intercede for you. He's ready and able to help you in your season, in your darkness, in your pain, in your time of suffering, so much so that whenever it is so dark and the clouds are so thick and you can't see through it, you don't have words to pray anymore. You have prayed yourself out. You have lost all words, but yet you can't go on. You know those moments whenever pain is real and hurt is real and loss is real and suffering is real, and, but yet you've got to go on to work because it happens every day, and yet the pain is there and the, and the meal has to be prepared and the bills have to be paid, but the pain is there. And the, you know, so how am I supposed to navigate that? Verse 26 and it goes on and says, For we do not know what to pray. For we do not know what to pray. Sometimes we just lose words. For as we ought, but the Spirit. <laughs> but the Spirit. He intercedes for us. With groanings that are too deep for words. He who searches hearts, again, he's an, he's an intercessor from the heart who knows what it is, uh, what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Sometimes I'm in, lost in pain and lost in this and I don't even know what to pray, but I know I need to pray, but I can't pray and I don't have words to pray unless what? The Spirit is interceding for me at that point. The hurt at that point. One recently... Went through a dark season, the clouds all around, and 
And I can remember one day praying all day, journaling all day, reading all day. I was so tired of input and so tired of thinking and so tired of speaking. I thought, okay, I'm going to go out. I'm going to go for a walk and I'm going to figure it out outside. The clouds will open up. Heaven will come down and glory will fill my soul or something will happen and, and this darkness will go. And so I go outside and nothing, nothing. It's dark, stars. So I just went and I went and laid on the ground. Just looked up at the stars. And there was nothing to do. There was no music to listen to. There was no television to zone out to. There was no food to help medicate myself away from. It was just me and the darkness and the Spirit of God. And I can't exactly explain it, but it was in that moment of just laying there looking up that I couldn't pray, that I sensed the Spirit of God was praying for me. And I can't say all the darkness went away when I stood up, no. But there was a break in the clouds. And there was warmth in my heart and there was life in my soul again. Just a little bit more to go another day. And sometimes it's all you have. John Bunyan said it like this, It's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. I said to you again, it's better to have a heart without words. You just can't speak, you can't pray. Then you're just filling up the air than a heart, than words without a heart. Number three, third pathway is trust. Trust, 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 trust. You're gonna have to say that a thousand times to yourself, but trust the plan and the purposes of God. The loving plan, I should say. Now, I want, to, I want to share with you the most un, the most abused, the most misspoken verse that I know of in the book of Romans. I won't say it's the most misused verse in the Bible, but I'll say in Romans chapter 8, it's certainly, and it's just simply when people jump into a middle of a verse and a thought and they pull out a phrase that fits them and they make it. So how many of us have ever heard the phrase, well, you know, all things are going to work together for good anyway. How many of y'all have heard that phrase? Raise your hand. I'm going to ask how many of you just use that phrase, all right? Because I've used that phrase. Oh, you know, all things are going to work together for good anyway. Oh, you know, there's always a silver lining out there. You know, everything's going to be okay in the end. The good book says it's all going to work out, right? That's like peace milling, picking out, cherry picking a phrase because that's not exactly what the verse says. So let's not misquote and misapply the verse. Let's look at verse 28. Follow along as I read. It says, For we know, for we know that those who love God, all things will work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, if you memorize it the way I did growing up out of the King James Version, it was, for we know all things work together for good. It makes the subject of the sentence the things. And actually, the subject is the love of God. Those who love God. Those who love God. Oh, those who love God. Those. Those will be the ones that all things will work out for. Oh, and uh, not no, that. Those who are, who are living called according to His purpose. So I'm not, I'm not even saying to all believers in the room today that everything's going to be just perfect if you love God and are calling according to His purpose and all that kind of, I'm not trying to say that because at the end of the day, it may not be your plan. 
And it may not be your way, and it may not be what your end result might be. He tells us what the end will be. He tells us what the good that he's aiming at, that all things will work together for the good. What's, what's the good? The good is at the last part of verse 29 when he says that we would be glorified that we would be made whole, that we would be made complete. And yes, that may mean as Lester in a wheelchair, it may mean for you suffering and pain and seasons right up till death. But it's so that God's glory would be fulfilled in you. If you allow it, if you love him, if you trust him through the processes, if you trust him through the pain, if you allow it to to do its work in you and you live out according to his purposes. There's other verses in the Bible that I think line up along this line. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, very commonly quoted passage of Scripture. We we probably, most of you can trust the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight or something like that. That's the way I memorized it. We like that last phrase, he will make straight your paths. He will make straight your path. That's what I want. I want the straight path, God, not the crooked, the hilly, the the pothole-ridden path. I want the straight path, God. What's the straight path? Well, okay, I want all things to work together for good too, right? Let's just take those two phrases and marry them together as those are the end results. That's what we want. You got to back into this. Am I in a love relationship with God? I'm trusting him. I'm believing in him. I'm walking with him. I love him and he loves me and there's this relationship. Now, again, you've got to dive into your own heart and your own soul and say, do I have a love relationship with God or do I just have religion? I just show up on Sunday. I hang out with some Christians. I shake Mike's hand before I go and tell him good sermon. That'll be loving God, right? Is that really what it means to love God? I don't think so. I think it's deeper than that. And I'm in step with God's purpose. I'm willing to walk with him. I'm willing for him to call the shots. I'm not leaning on my own understanding. I'm making sure every way of my life is acknowledging him. And by the way, I'm also living out the called purpose that he has designed me to live. Oh, at that point, now we can start talking about paths being straight. We can start talking about things working out for the way God intended them to work out. So there's two questions you need to ask yourself today. I need to ask myself today, and that is this. Is am, am, am I in a love relationship with God? How is my love relationship with God? Stale, stagnant, non-existent, mechanical, but not real, not intimate. Think about you, you the, that are celebrating Valentine's today. Have a Valentine to celebrate it with. Think about the love that you want to have. That's the same kind of love that God wants to have with you? Am I walking in step with his purposes, with his plan for my life? You're going to have to dive into that. But that's a part of the pathway to making it through the suffering. Number, number four, and I'm finished, is tap into the reservoir of God's love, the deep reservoir of God's love. Again, I go back to what I read earlier about the love of God. We're more than conquerors through the love of Christ. You know, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. It comes back. We go full circle. We're there now. We talked about having the eternal perspective. We talked about enlisting the Holy Spirit's help into our life, trusting the love and plan and purpose of God. Look at verse 31. It's a great verse to memorize, if you will. Verse 31, and then how shall we say these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? There's a sense of confidence that overcomes a believer whenever life is crushing them, that they come through the crushing because they know they're in God's will. They know the Spirit of God is with them. They know that the world can be against them, but God is for them. And if God is for me, who can be against me? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son. He starts talking about Jesus and gave him up for us all. How will he, now he starts asking a bunch of questions that an implied answer is in there. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So understand this. He's doing a philosophical argument here. He's going from the lesser to the greater. He said, listen, did not God give us his son? If he gave us his son, why are we worried about him providing some other meager need of our life? Why do we worry whenever he gave us his son, the most precious gift of all? Jesus did the same thing, but he did it from the lesser to the greater. He said, listen, you remember the lilies of the field? They don't have to worry. You remember the, the, the birds in the air? They don't have to worry where their food's going to come from. He says, listen, if God takes care of the lilies and he takes care of the sparrows, won't he take care of you? You remember that? When he's telling the Sermon on the Mount? So what is it here? Lesser the greater, greater the lesser. All comes down to the fact that, listen, if God gave us his son, there's nothing that he won't give us. It's kind of like me giving you the title deed to our house and say, here, here, you have the land, you have the house, you have everything with it. And then you calling me on the phone and say, hey, can I, can I come play in the backyard? That doesn't make sense. I just gave you everything. Jesus. God gave us his son. There's nothing that he won't give us. I don't have a need. I don't have a pain. I don't, I don't have a, a trouble. I don't have a betrayal. I don't have a suffering. I don't see an injustice out there that Jesus Christ, the son of God, is not able and willing to step in and be my redeemer. And Voskamp, in her book, 1,000 Gifts, replays and relives a story of her losing her sister crushed by a vehicle, by a truck actually, when she was two years old. And how she didn't believe in God because God would not allow that to happen to her sister. But then she journeyed on in her faith and she came back to believing in God. And this book talks about that. And this is one of the statements that she said. God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust? With the bark of the raw wounds, with the thorns pressed on his brow, your name on the cracked lips, how will he not also graciously give us all things? He deems best. He deems right. He's already given us the incomprehensible. I don't want to make light of sin, of suffering, of pain and loss and hurt. I don't want to just kind of wash over it with some Christianese today and everyone go out and, and be happy in Jesus. 
I want you to wrestle with your own spirit and your own pain. And I want you to ask yourself the question, am I in a love relationship with Jesus that is totally transforming my life? It's giving me a different perspective on life here and in, in forever. I have the Holy Spirit who is with me to help me in my weaknesses, interceding for me. You can't get any more specific than that. Even whenever I'm breaking down and I no longer have words, I have no longer have strength, He is interceding for me. The beauty of that is just excites me. And the fact that He gave me so much, and that just shows you how much more He's willing to give me to meet my needs according to His riches and glory. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? I want to ask you the question again. Do you have a personal love relationship with God? This is serious. As we kind of come, get ready to land the plane on this series of messages, it could be really easy for me to get into some kind of therapeutic deism to where I just kind of talk you through some helpful hints on how to deal with pain. But there is no solution there is no answer. There is no eternal hope outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the one who unlocks heaven. He is the one who sends his spirit. He is the one who causes it all to work out in the end according to his purpose. He is the one who gave so much but yet wants to give you so much more. Do you know him today? With just your every everybody just praying. If you're if, if you're not praying, pray. If you're not seeking, seek. If you're here right now and and you say, Mike, I want to know Jesus, and I don't know him the way you just described it. Would you just raise your hand up, put it down? Raise your hand up, put it down. Thank you. Thank you. There's others in this room that are just struggling in the muck and the mire of the pain. Hang on to those words. Likewise, the Spirit helps us. If you're a child of God today, allow the Spirit to do in you what He wants to do. Father God, you know the hearts of everyone in this room. The pain that's real, the pain that's unrelenting, I pray for those who raised their hand and boldly said, I want to know Jesus. I don't know Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want to give myself to him. I want to follow him. I want him to give me a perspective on eternity. I want him to send his spirit into me. I want him to cause it to work together for good. I want him to show me his gracious, never-ending, deep reservoir of love that will not allow anything in this world to separate me from him. Lord, I I want him. I want Jesus. I want freedom from my sins. I want Jesus. Lord, those in this room that are crying out for you, Lord, I pray today that you in no uncertain terms will save them, will rescue them, will adopt them as your child. We pray for everyone whatever stage and phase of life they're in, 
coming in in pain, going out of pain, in pain, whatever season they're in, may they understand that it does not compare to the glory yet to be revealed. Lord, we thank you for these moments. We ask your blessings on this time together in Jesus' name.